0: This episode of the Adoption Connection podcast is sponsored by Faith, Hope, and Connection, a 30-day devotional for adoptive and foster parents. In this book, you'll find real, often raw, stories from adoptive and foster parents in the trenches. You'll find scripture and faith-filled hope pointing you to Jesus, and you'll find honest reflections speaking courage to your soul and reminding you that you are not alone.
1: This devotional is a gift to you from 30 authors, all foster and adoptive parents, who offer a window into their own lives and families. You'll recognize yourself time and time again in their words. Do not miss this devotional.
0: This devotional is available on Amazon, both in softcover or Kindle version.
1: Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls.
0: And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Good morning, Lisa. Welcome to episode
1: 47. Good morning, Melissa. How are you today? I am good. Good. Well, I am really looking forward to today's episode. You know, one of our most popular episodes so far is the episode where I interviewed you about being an adoptee and later becoming an adoptive mom, and how that story has uh, flowed through your life. And it was fascinating, and we all enjoyed hearing it so much. So today's interview is really interesting as well, because we get to hear another adult adoptee's story of growing up in her family. And I think her story is quite different from yours, which I think makes it interesting. And she also became an adoptive mom. And on top of all of that, she's a therapist. So she shares really deep, insightful things about herself as a child and growing up, and then how her story as an adoptee influences her as an adoptive mom and her relationship with her daughter. It was a fantastic interview. Jerry Lee is our guest today.
0: And again, super insightful. I'm sure it's due to a lot of the work she's done in studying the line of work that she's been in. And like I always say, you know, every adoptee story is so different. And so I think that's why these interviews are so important, because it helps us remember as adoptive parents that each experience of an adoptee is unique by itself. And so while there are some generalities that are true, it's really important that we stay mindful to the experience that each of our kids is having and and kind of not project uh, stuff onto them. Jerry Lee has a master's in social work and a postgraduate certificate. She works with at-risk infants and toddlers and their families, uh, and she graduated from the University of Michigan. She's also been endorsed through the Michigan Association of Infant Mental Health as an infant mental health mentor. She also talks about, in her interview, about her kind of journey to more holistic health for just healing her body too. She has a daughter and she lives in Michigan still. I was just fascinating, again, to talk to another adult adoptee and kind of pick their brains about her experience.
1: It was great. I couldn't stop listening. I even had to go outside to do some work and I just took my computer because I was listening on my computer so I could keep going. So I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as Melissa and I did.
0: Jerry Lee, welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast. Thank you.
2: I'm so excited to be here.
0: So a couple months back, Lisa and I both shared our stories. Lisa is a birth mom or first mom, and I am an adult adoptee, and you are also an adoptee. And our listeners Loved the content, I think they love being able to hear the stories of different perspectives from the triad. so thank you again so much for agreeing to share some of your story with us.
2: Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed listening to your stories too. It was fascinating.
0: Will you start by just telling us a little bit about your adoption story, what age you were adopted, where you were adopted from and and then we'll kind of move on from there so I
2: was born in nineteen seventy During a time of closed adoptions, I was born in upstate New York, um, was in foster care for two months, and then was placed with my adoptive parents at exactly two months of age, and had no, we had like the tiniest bit of information about my biological family, really little bits of the story to go on. And um, my My adoptive mom was really proud of herself that she had sought out whatever information they were willing to share. She was told that a lot of parents didn't want to know those things, um, but she thought that would be helpful, and so she asked them to tell whatever they could. But that was just a, a tiny bit of information about my mom being, I think, 17 and my dad being 18 or 19, and my mom had a scholarship to go away to college. And she wanted to pursue that. And so they made a decision to uh, place, place me for adoption.
0: So, Jerry Lee, did you always know you were adopted? How did your parents kind of broach that topic with you? Or do you remember talking about it a lot as you were a child?
2: Yes, I always knew, or as long as I could remember, I knew. It was something my mom shared with me openly and was really proud about. But it wasn't really, as I got older, it wasn't really something
0: that was talked about in my in my family. So you said your mom was really proud about, you know, being able to gather the information about your birth family and kind of being open to talk to you about it. You know, like you said, back in the 70s, open adoption wasn't really a conversation anyone was having. How do you think, that was that intuitive for her? How did she know that that was something that would be important later on?
2: We recently revisited that because I recently did a DNA test and so have connected with some biological family members. And so we revisited that topic. And I don't know how she knew that that would be an important thing. But she thought she wanted she wanted whatever information was available that that could be useful somehow. As I, when, once I, I was much older, I was like, I think, 29 when I got non identifying information. She's still upset to this day that certain pieces, we didn't have a lot of health information because my parents were young, my grandparents were young, but what was in there would have been really important information about food allergies that my mom had. And so she's still upset that she, she didn't have access to that information, that that would have been so helpful.
0: I think medical holes have been some of the biggest. Um, questions in my story i don 't have a lot of health problems, but every time I have to answer a question about a health something, you know just not knowing it 's always unsettling. What were your feelings about being an adoptee growing up were did you have positive feelings, mixed feelings were you angry upset yeah that 's one of the things I found so interesting about your
2: story is that it really depended on my age at the time, and it also just recently being having more information. So I have new, like a whole new set of feelings. I think I, I loved my mom's story about being proud of, you know, celebrating adoption and being proud of that and feeling special. The only book I really had back then was The Chosen Baby, which I would never read it to my daughter today. It leaves so much out. And, and I think every time I read it, I felt like there was so much missing from that story. I was always really curious about where I came from and my parents, and I had a lot of fantasies about who they were and how they met, their circumstances, and, you know, longed to be rescued at, at different times. But on the surface, I I loved my mom, and I loved my grandparents, and I felt proud of that. There was just a big disconnect between my inner experiences And what we knew on the like what we knew about how adoption could impact me. Um, So part of the story or what we were aware of at the time was adoptees had the same kind of outcomes as non-adoptees. And we now know today that that, that's not true. So I grew up feeling um, I had a lot of phobias and fears, um, separation. So my adoptive parents got divorced when I was two-ish. And my, my mom got remarried when I was uh, five, almost six. And then my stepdad adopted me when I was eight. So we joined a big blended family. And so I had a lot of separation anxiety. I had uh, claustrophobia, fear of being in small places, mostly by myself. And then as a teenager, just really struggled with depression and self-esteem and really felt quite out of place um, and didn't have words for that or support around that. I also didn't know any other adopt I didn't have relationships with any other adoptees so that I could talk to somebody and know that somebody shared my experience um, or pieces of my experience. And I think my mom carried around a lot of guilt about the underlying cause of what I was struggling with and didn't really know how to help. And I did have health issues um, starting, I think when I was like 10 or 12, I started developing allergies to just about everything, environmental allergies to everything in my house. And we lived in the country and we had our neighbors had cows in the pasture behind our backyard. And so I was allergic to the cows, I was allergic to the hay, I was allergic to the mold, I was allergic to grass, I was <laughs> allergic to everything. And then that kind of escalated to asthma and then um, autoimmune disorder was diagnosed in my 20s. Around the time that I got my non-identifying information, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. So yeah, it just feels much more complex to try and answer, like, whether I was angry or happy. I think I felt all of those things at the same time or to different degrees, depending on how old I was and how aware I was of how adoption,
0: relinquishment, and then adoption was impacting me. Yeah, so it sounds like you had, you said you didn't have a lot of words. So it sounds like just without the knowledge to be able to connect all those dots, we know so much more now, obviously. Did you feel like there was space to explore that, or did you not even know how to communicate kind of that disconnect between your insides and your outsides?
2: I learned intuitively early on just not to talk about certain things that I was struggling with. And so while it was okay to like, talk about the basics of adoption or celebrate adoption, I learned not to inquire or talk about what I felt like I was missing. And we really didn't have permission to do. There was just so much secrecy. And for me, I I shared this with my mom recently, that that, that all that secrecy results in shame. She just looked heartbroken. Like for her, this had been the most beautiful thing. And now as an adoptive mom and an adoptee, I can see both sides, um, but because I have the experience as an adoptee, I, I walk carefully in the middle of those two realities. But she just looked heartbroken, like that that any part of that was negative for me. And even just talking about that was really difficult for her. And so I, I really didn't have that place to talk about it at all. And in my so the blended family I joined when I was five, almost six, I have five siblings from that family. And so adoption really wasn't discussed or acknowledged or understood. It's, it's still something that I think there's a lot of surprises for everybody in the family about how adoption has impacted me as I've been talking about it more recently in talking about why I even uh, did an, a DNA test and why I was searching uh, for answers and for connection to family.
0: How has, because now you are an adoptive mom and working in the field, supporting adoptive families, was your journey through adoption and through having wrestling with all of those feelings, was that motivation to get into the field that you're in? How did that all play together?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So my mom says that from a really young age, I was fascinated in babies and that I would literally wander away from her to go find babies. So that is true. Like unconsciously, I've just been really interested in babies and I was pretty sure when I was in high school that I wanted to be a preschool teacher with really young kids. My parents were teachers. I just recently found out that my biological mother was a teacher, but my all three of my adoptive parents were music teachers. And so that just seemed, and my best friend in high school, her mom had a, she owned a preschool and she was a preschool teacher. And that just seemed like the perfect fit for me. And so I started out on that path and realized pretty quickly with my first field experience, which fortunately I had as a freshman in college, <laughs> that that I was really interested in the little boy in the back of the room who was struggling. He was not okay. Uh, he was having a really hard time separating from his mom and feeling safe and comfortable in the classroom. And that's where my attention went every day and my heart ached for him. And I couldn't imagine like the choices the teachers had to make, they needed to focus on the whole group. They needed to take care of everybody. So within that pretty short period of time, I realized that teaching to the whole group was not where my heart was. Um, but I really wasn't sure. Wh- I knew it was children, but I wasn't sure how. So it was a bit of a journey I was fortunate to be able to take lots of developmental psychology and psychology classes and then had an experience um, internships and Then my first job after college was in a therapeutic preschool for children who um, had open their families had open um, protective service cases for substantiated abuse and neglect and so we had therapeutic classrooms for the children and then there were social workers on staff who worked with the parents. And it was a year-long, year full-day program. And so I thought, like working with preschoolers, that I'd be helping to prevent things. And I realized pretty quickly, no, no, three-year-olds have already experienced trauma. And it was devastating. So then I wasn't sure. So I, I got my master's in social work and wanted to be a clinician. And I remembered seeing posters around campus about an um, infant-toddler certificate program. Uh, through the School of Social Work. That looked really interesting. I didn't totally know why. I just figured I need to work with younger and younger kids because, you know, we got to get to them to prevent something like this from happening, you know, to work with their families. So a couple of years um, as a therapist, um, after graduate school, I went back and did the certificate program. And it was on the first day of one of the classes. It was a really small group of, I think, like 13 of us in our class for that year. The first day of one of the classes, I was setting up my area with my notebook and my name tag, and I was a little bit distracted when the teacher started. And he said, and he is, he became a mentor of mine long after that, and has said he he can't even recall that he would ever say this, but he did. He he wasn't deny, denying that he said he's like I can't believe I would say that, but he said, "Is anybody here adopted?" And I was so caught off guard because I was just—I was not paying attention. I was so caught off guard that I I didn't raise my hand and because I was also in shock that he would even ask, what does that have to do with this? Well, I mean, what does that have to do with why we're here today? And he said, oh, that's interesting because usually there's one or two adoptees in the group because adoptees tend to have a lifelong uh, or an interest in the origin of things, like a lifelong interest in the origin of things. And so that left me kind of dumbfounded. I had started doing work with a therapist while I was in grad school. Um, I was taking classes around early uh, maltreatment and was studying in uh, the clinic that was a sexual abuse uh, assessment clinic. And I started having panic attacks in relation to the information that was being shared there. We did some really great work and uh, I realized I had been depressed just chronically for probably since I was uh, a child at some point. Um, And that started to lift and that was really, really powerful. But even when we ended, because um, I felt like I needed something more, I was like, I feel like there's something else that I need a different kind of therapist. I think there was something that happened really early. And I couldn't even, like, it wasn't even enough that I was adopted. Like, it was, there must have been something else. There must have been some other trauma. And so she supported me in um, kind of trying to figure out what that ne- next step might be. And interestingly, it was the professor uh, who would ask the question who I had in my mind, like he would be the perfect therapist for me um, because he knows all about this early development, early attachment, infant mental health stuff. And it was a little scary, but it was kind of exciting. So that's how I backed my way um, into my field, (laughs) even practicing, um, you know, and working with other clinicians and being told by a mentor, like all adoptees struggle. I was like, no, I'm really okay. I'm okay. Like this is, you know, my family's good. I'm okay. This this isn't something I need to dive into right now. I had already done a piece of therapy, and um, but he just he felt the need to tell me that one day um, during supervision. So it's been like uh, really in phases uh, that I've you know that some of my awareness I've become awake to how strongly adoption has impacted me, and really it's been more. F- Fully awake uh, in the last four to five months, even, and being able to express my story more clearly and coherently in relation to having information about my biological family and why that's important. And the reaction of my loved ones around me has helped me refine and articulate what has been missing and how that was hard for me and why it's important to seek out more information now.
0: Yeah, I think what's fascinating about all of this, and I tell a lot of adoptive parents this, is our journeys are lifelong. And I know that it feels like when we're parenting that we have such a short time with our kids. And in some ways that's true. And a lot of times we kind of define the time that we have with them and kind of the time that we have to reach whatever we've defined as success until they're 18 or some other magical number. But you know, we're both adults now. We're both parents, and our stories aren't over. We're still processing. We're still still learning things. Um, it's probably a whole nother podcast episode, but I did a twenty three andMe DNA test this winter as well, and wasn't expecting a whole lot, honestly. But you know, every couple days not couple days, maybe every couple weeks, I get an email from them that says, "Oh, we found someone else who could be connected to you," and the percentage of shared DNA that I share with these people. Keeps going up. <laughs> and so that was, you know, unexpected. And so I think it's imp- important for parents to know, you know, sometimes our kids leave us or still have questions or still wrestling with things as teens and young adults. And it can feel so heavy, but just know that, you know, our stories aren't over until they're really over. And there's a whole lifetime of exploring and question asking and growing. All of these things can happen so much longer after 18. So you alluded to this a little bit, this tension that you hold of being an adoptee and then being an adoptive mom. How has your experience kind of shaped the way that you're parenting your daughter? And I know that she's still a little bit young, but what are some of those things that you hold in the balance
2: yeah, she just turned five yesterday. Um, so, and she has claimed that today is another birthday. So, we're still celebrating. But yeah, she's really young. Um, but she has been aware, and she's been able to communicate about them since before she had words. And I think that has been part of my journey too: is watching how to to have. I have two stepchildren who are older, and I entered their life when they were four and six. Um, and so I worked with a lot of families with babies and toddlers, but obviously it's different. And I was a nanny and I, you know, that's just what I did as I was growing up as I helped care for other people's children, but to, to be intimately uh, involved in the care of a baby and to learn over time how sensitive she was to everything that was going on around her. It helped me just realize, okay, so I was in foster care for two months, huh? two months is actually a significant amount of time. Like it just seemed, it seemed like nothing. Like it was never talked about. I had one piece of paper that um, had some notes about what food I liked because back in 1970, they fed you food instead of just milk or formula. Um, so I beca- I was really committed to um, her being acknowledged, her feelings being acknowledged, because I felt like that was a piece that was, missing for me growing up is that my inner experiences weren't validated, that my, um, my dad, who loved me very much, my stepdad, um, who became my adoptive father, he loved me very much, but I think he was worried for how I was going to navigate this world. And he felt like I needed to, to be a little tougher. And so he would do things to try and toughen me up as opposed to supporting and understanding my sensitivities. So I had a really hard time when Anna Grace was a baby. I had a big flare of my own autoimmune disorder. Um, I was exhausted. My husband and I were exhausted. Um, Her days and nights were upside down, which her mom had told us that was like that she was very active at night. And um, so it took about six weeks before she started sleeping for chunks of time um, at night. And so I got pretty sick and I got really, really anxious. About losing her. I had had uh, a lot of miscarriages before we moved on to adoption. And so all this fear of, lose, of loss, of uh, being repeated, uh, was coming up for me. And I was um, so anxious that I wasn't talking about it as much as I should have been. But one of the things I was just loving watching her and being with her, so acknowledging her, talking to her throughout the day, talking to her about what I was doing so that she was involved in her care. And then a lot of things for her to be close. You know, I knew from talking to other adoptive parents whose circumstances were a little different, but they had talked about, um, one friend had shared that um, co-sleeping had been really useful to them. And so initially she was near us in a co-sleeper, but then she, she would just have long pauses of not breathing during the night. So I needed her to move her closer and closer to me so that she could help regulate her breathing uh, pretty much next to my body. But that didn't help my anxiety either, the not breathing part and setting off her little uh, motion sensor. So in letting her be in charge of her body as much as possible, um, communicating with her, validating her feelings, open adoption was really important to me that we maintain that connection and foster that relationship with her, um, for us, it's been with her um, first mom and um, siblings. She has three siblings and then extended family on on mom's side and having just a lot of hopes around that and not knowing how that would go, but just feeling like that was going to be a really important part of our journey was working hard to build that relationship and have it, have it be one of trust uh, and mutual respect. And then with uh, my daughter, I found it really helpful because I was nervous about talking to her about the more difficult parts of her story, that because I was talking to her anyway, um, I was talking to her about everything we were doing, everything that I was doing. I started practicing before I thought she could really understand a lot of what I was saying. I just practiced telling her story so that I could get comfortable with it because there was a piece of me, there still is a piece of me that would like to protect her from the hard parts of her story but I know that's not helpful. That's not going to serve her well. She already knows in her body that something happened, that the the chosen baby book, that era of just you know telling this happy story is not useful. And so I thought that was really helpful. And then as a, I'd have to look back as an older infant, young toddler, I don't remember exactly how old she was, but when I would talk about like our story, like our side of the story for our family, for my husband and myself and our older kids and the joy that we felt around that. I would always acknowledge, but I know you went through really hard things to get here. And at a really young age, she would agree with me and she would kind of moan. And so that's, that's we've just been building from there. Um, she's biracial. She's, um, her mom is white and her dad is uh, black, and she has really light features um, and blonde hair and blue eyes, but she has understood from a really young age that she's different than us. She's just exquisitely aware of everything. She also has sensory sensitivity. I mean, she's just sensitive all around. So they often say like kids, babies especially, toddlers, our children will we kind of sometimes are almost always catching up with them. Like we we think we know what the next phase is, but they're the ones who let us know like, oh, we're there, we're there now. And so you're like to catch up and figure out what it is they need in that moment or for that particular phase of their development. And I feel like that's, that's what it's been like. Um, And so um, we live in a mostly white community with very little diversity, pretty like 40 minutes outside of Detroit. And so Prioritizing her having racial mirrors um, because we've gone through chunks of time of not being around her siblings. Those are important mirrors, obviously, but having many more in a community that can feel like you don't belong because pretty much most of the people that we see day to day are white. So that's been an important piece. And she was aware like, we have friends at church who are adoptive parents, and the wife is black and she grew up in our town with her family uh, present. And so I told her, I said, well, like we went to this other campus of our church and I was just to see if it was more diverse because it's in Ann Arbor, college town and it's a more diverse area. It's like 20 minutes away, 25 minutes away. And I was just checking it out to see if maybe we needed to make a switch. And I said to Aunt Grace, she was two at the time. I said, we met some really, really kind people today, really lovely people. And I was just uh, a bit choked up at how lovely it was. The two-year-old room that she would be in had um, other uh, black children, other children of color, and it actually had two student volunteers that were black. And I was just, I was just so pleased. That, and they were very, obvious. they were very welcoming. And Anna Grace said to me, she said, yes, and there were other, there were other people with brown skin like me. And that is what confirmed for me, like, okay, she's been aware of this. She is aware of this. Certainly we've talked about it, but I hadn't, I hadn't really made that differentiation for her um, or we hadn't had conversations about her being Brown and other people would disagree. People still today would disagree that she even looks uh, biracial. And so that piece has been really important because that's not part of my personal adoption experience is the transracial piece, That part is new as an adoptive parent. And so really learning a lot about that, Um, but wanting her to be able to talk about whatever it is she's feeling and coping with and for me to be that safe person that she can do that with. Thanks for sharing all of that.
0: What would you tell families who have children maybe like your daughter or maybe like you felt with just this intense awareness of what? you had been through, even though you had been adopted as an infant, and this sensitivity to emotions and this feeling of loss and this kind of this whole, you know, just kind of exploring, going back to origins and all of those things. Thinking back on your experience, what do you wish your parents had done for you? And what what advice would you give parents in how to best walk with their children through that experience? Thank you for asking that.
2: One of the things I become we, just so that anxiety that I felt as a new adoptive parent of being terrified of of, of losing my daughter, having something tragic happen, a, pe- a big piece of that was my having not processed my own losses. And so a piece when I'm talking to other uh, women who are in that period of time where you're waiting, chosen, you're waiting to be matched is to make sure that you're taking care of your own heart and that you are addressing those losses. For me, it felt so overwhelming to dip back into those feelings. I had walled them off um, for lack of better coping skills at the time. And so they all came just, I won't even say oozing, they came shooting out um, (laughs) when I had Anna Grace. And we were so filled with joy and but we were also exhausted. I mean, it just, it was not the best time to be uh, processing that. And it had a a devastating impact on my relationship with my husband, um, which I'm still, we're still working to repair. Um, And so taking care of yourself and building community for yourself around uh, whatever it is, your own hurts or your own losses, if that's been part of your journey to being uh, an adoptive parent and having people to talk to. Um, I'm fortunate that some of my closest friends are also therapists, and so so I can talk about a piece of that. So I seek out coaches and therapists for myself as well. And then I think also for the for the child side is to, you know, a big piece of our culture, which I think is finally shifting, but a big piece that I still see played out um, is. As adults, we are really uncomfortable with children's feelings, with the crying that we want. Um, It's just, it's unsettling to us. And so a lot of the messages to just, you're okay, you're okay to push that away. In fact, this is, my daughter's uh, preschool is lovely and they validate feelings and they acknowledge feelings and they help, you know, coach children around that. But for some reason, yesterday, um, her birthday, which birthdays can be tricky. can bring up all all kinds of feelings. I know you just did a podcast on that. And so I was ready for, you know, acknowledging that there's going to be some something's going to be really disappointing today. I don't know what it's going to be, but it'll be something. And um she came out of preschool yesterday saying the um phrase you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And she must have said that 30 or 40 times yesterday. And it wasn't until, and it was just grating on my nerves um, <laughs> because I work so hard to validate feelings and like, sometimes you do throw a fit and it's not because, you know, that you're a bad person. We all flip our lids. So I, I tried not to have a big reaction around her, but it wasn't until the end of the day when she just said it really, really loudly. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. That I realized why that phrase had stuck with her all day on that particular day. Because she told her dad and I at lunch that, oh, no, all the teachers say that. Why it was really, even this morning on the way to preschool, she was saying it over and over again on the way to school. So I don't use that phrase. I don't recommend that phrase. But you know, validating feelings as they're coming up and supporting them, even as babies, um, to just validate those feelings and to coach them, narrate what you're seeing going on around them. Um, instead of trying to quiet those hard feelings. Um, I think if our kids can grow up with parents that they see as strong and safe and nurturing and capable, and capable of managing their own hurts and their own hard feelings and not being overwhelmed by ours, then you're, you're creating that trust and that bridge so that they can, obviously, it's many, many, you get many occasions to practice this, and you can make, and I do make many mistakes, but giving them the opportunity um, to be supported and to stay with them uh, through those those hard feelings that are not necessarily adoption related. Um, they're just about, you know, the hard things about being one or two or three, the things that come up, things that don't go your way.
0: So I'm I wanna voice something that I I know some listeners might be thinking, and there's this piece of us that totally understands validating feelings, especially big ones. I think we the adoption community has gotten a lot better about big feelings around adoption and loss. But I think there's still this piece of like, you know, when you get the red popsicle, but you really wanted the green one and you throw that fit and we use that phrase, you know, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Um, and there's, and you alluded to it earlier too, about that that cultural piece of, of wanting or your uh, father's desire for you to be tough enough to make it in the quote unquote real world, right? What would you say to parents who are like thinking that there's an overage of validating feelings? How do we, is there a line? How do we balance that? What do we do with our feelings that over validating feelings could create a problem or thinking about, you know, not creating spoiled brats or helping our kids understand that you can't throw a fit all day long or whenever you don't get your way as an adult? So, how do you walk that line? And, and what would you say to us as parents about that? So
2: you can validate a feeling you really wanted something different, but this is what I have. So you can validate it, but still say that this is the limit and, and maintain some boundaries for yourself. And, and that, you know, struggle is part of life and struggle is how we learn and how we grow. And so it's not about acquiescing to their every wish or actually, um, Working to prevent upset feelings from coming up, it's just acknowledging the feelings that do come up, and then holding to that limit. And sometimes um, my daughters are really good at negotiating, um, <laughs> and I don't think that <laughs> she is really good at it. And um, I could get into a lot of power struggles if I stayed with my original limit, like you know, two more minutes, five more minutes. But negotiating is a wonderful skill for her to have as she grows older. It's a great skill now, I'm sure she uses it in other ways, um, but it's really challenging in, in the moment. And so, but it's okay to, for them to have that power, to share that power with you. There's so much about their lives they don't have control over and they don't have power about and around, um, particularly being an adoptee. And so how can you share that power with them in a way that feels safe? You know, It's not good for kids to feel like they run the show. Um, that's scary. They need us to be that safe container. So validating the feeling, but still holding the limit and compromising when when it seems like you have the time and the room and the space to do that. And you want to foster, you know, you want to foster that skill in your child, which I think is a is a good thing to do. The other thing about, um, you know, you can't grow up and throw fits. The reality is is that adults do lose it. I mean, you know, we make we make mistakes and we have to make repairs. I spend a lot of time talking about that. (laughs) I feel like I spend a lot of time talking because, you know, kids are going to push our buttons. But what happens is that we, we develop those skills gradually over time. And if you have a little one who is like myself, like I was likely, or like my daughter, who is just exquisitely sensitive to the To the emotions or energy of others around them, to the lights, to the colors, to the crowd, they just have a lot that they're they're trying to navigate that they can't communicate about, and so it may come out about a cup, but it really may not be about that cup. It could be that you know that's they're just letting it all out at that particular point in the day. Something that they've been they've been holding it together up until that point. So I think it's on you know to get into the piece about like oh we have to train them that they can't do this out in the world. Um, I was just listening to your podcast again with uh, Robin Goble and, um, you know, that you are getting, like she talks, it's, it's so helpful to think about it the way she was talking about that when you start worrying about that is when you're out of the present moment. Like when you start having those fears about, well, she can't do this when she's eight. She can't do this when she's 10. Like we're, we're just no longer with them in that moment we're losing sight of, of of what's happening and our own nervous system is is obviously uh getting activated at that time so they they will develop those things over time but there's going to be lots of environmental factors and internal factors that are going to make that harder one day than another and i feel like that that's uh what i do well with families is try to be that outside person that could then help them figure out like what are those factors? When is it going well? When does my child fall apart? And what are those things that are that are contributing to that, the ones that we can address and the ones that we, that we can't?
0: Yeah, that's so good. I, it's so good to, again, just be reminded to stay in the present and not let fear run away with us and to remember that a better skill to maybe focus on isn't so much holding it together, but knowing how to repair it because you're right, mm-hmm. we all lose it. With our own kids, let alone, you know, when we're driving with the guy who's doing 50 in the left lane or, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, right? We all hit our limit mm-hmm. and we do, we do throw fits actually.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, we do.
0: <laughs> so I think that's beautiful. And, I, and we talk a lot here at the Adoption Connection about high structure and high nurture. And I think your mm-hmm. example of, you know, holding and validating our child's feelings about, the color cup or the color popsicle, but then maybe having a limit, like you're not, you know, you already looked Mm at that one once. That's the one you get to finish if you want it. It's yours. Yeah. It's yours. (laughs) Um, is a really, sometimes I think we forget about that middle ground. You know, we think that we either Mm -hmm. have to acquiesce or we have to tell them to suck it up and we don't Mm -hmm. give space. And we forget that there's this magic middle where we can hold Mm -hmm. the feeling And then still feel like we're not being walked all over. So thanks for that reminder. Um, I just so appreciate your story, your willingness to share um, the great advice you gave. Uh, I know, again, it's just always important to have space as adults to hear all of our stories, all of the perspectives from all the sides of the triad, specifically in the adoption community. And so I just appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, And maybe one day we'll have you back and we can delve into the world of um, DNA tests and all of that. Cause I know that some families are thinking about that for their kids and wondering about the pros and
1: the cons and all that comes with that. That would be great. That was just a really wonderful interview. I hope everybody listening gleaned some great little nuggets of wisdom and thought from Jerry Lee. You know, one of the stories she shared was about her daughter saying the phrase, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And I was talking to Melissa about this and that the first time I ever heard that phrase was when a friend told me about taking her daughter shopping for school supplies. And, you know, they had a list from the school and they followed the list exactly one of the things they had to get were these composition notebooks you know and so her daughter very very carefully chose special notebooks it even cost a little bit more than the basic ones they had puppies on them or kittens or different things and you she was going to a new school this was her first time at this school so she, she had these special special notebooks well when she got to school it turned out that all of the school supplies It hadn't been indicated anywhere, but they were all communal. So the teacher gathered everything up, including these very special notebooks of my friend's daughter, and then randomly passed things out to children. And this little girl was devastated. And she, she asked, I guess, for one of her special ones she'd picked out. And the teacher said to her, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And I thought that is so dismissive of children's emotions. I mean, I felt like crying for my friend's daughter. So that story stuck with me. How about you, Melissa? Well, I had kind of an opposite reaction. I was thinking about how many
0: times I've said that to my kids. We actually say you get what you get and you don't get upset. (laughs) And I don't have to use it as much anymore, but my mom's a preschool teacher and I know she uses it all the time. And I had never stopped to think about how dismissive it was. I think because it's this idea of, I'm not going to change what the routine is, right? Like in preschool, they have a snack time and everyone gets the same snack. The kids don't bring their own snack in. There's like a communal snack, right? And so I loved how Jerry Lee made the distinction between validating our kids' emotions, right? They can throw a fit, right? They can't throw a violent fit or do things that are disrespectful, right? But they can show emotion when they don't get their way. And we can validate that and say, gosh, it is really hard when you don't get the snack that you want or the notebook that you want or the popsicle color that you want and, and help them know that those feelings are valid. But I loved how she said, but you can still hold your limits. You can still say, I'm sorry. I know it's hard that you don't get the blue popsicle, but that's the only one I have. So would you like it or would, you know, you don't have to have it. Um, and so I've been mauling over that for ever since I heard her say it. And I've told a couple friends about it and I don't know, I think it's made me a better parent to just realize that sure, you can throw a fit when you're upset about not getting your way, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to give in to your way. And I think it's that forever balance that we talk about here at the Adoption Connection about high structure and high nurture. So I just love it. I just, I'm still thinking about it. It's making me better.
1: (laughs) Good. Yeah. I mean, if, if on every podcast episode we glean one tip or tool that makes us a better mom, I think that is fantastic. And I hope all of you out there listening feel the same way. I know. Well, and honestly,
0: we can't take more than one little tidbit at a time, right? Because we can only make small changes. So if it was too much, too fast. We couldn't sustain it. Anyway, if y'all want to connect with Jerry Lee and see what she offers or hear more about her experience, you can find her at Jerry Lee Kroll. It's dot com. She is also on Facebook. Um, she has a page at Jerry Lee Kroll as a LMSW, which I think is a licensed masters of social work. If you can't remember all of that, we will have links to all of those things. They'll be super easy to find at the show notes. And as always, you can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 47.
1: Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection.
0: Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more
1: moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you.
0: The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevier.